Good morning. Thank you for the invitation to uh, return and be here once again. Uh, being a guest, a preacher, guest lecturer is a sacred task, but you know very quickly how the last time went when you're not invited back. And so to be here again is a, a, a distinct pleasure. Um, but as I often say when I preach in others' uh, living rooms, when I'm, when I'm in places that are not my own, uh, <clears throat> You also, as a guest preacher, get to say some things that maybe the normals don't get to say uh, because I, I'm, I get on a plane later tomorrow. So <clears throat> if you don't like what I or the Bible have to say, uh, it's been nice knowing you. <clears throat> Martin Luther was once uh, asked by one of his students, uh, one of his snarky students at that, what God was doing on the eighth day, Moses responded, or excuse me, Martin Luther responded. <laughs> he had a Moses complex, I'm sure. <laughs> but Martin Luther apparently, when being asked what God was doing on the eighth day, reported to have said that he was creating hell for people who ask silly questions. This morning, I want to dare what some might consider a very silly question. Uh, I want to ask uh, a question about attention. In particular, I want to provoke the, the, the question of, uh, has something been stolen from us? And for the next few minutes, I, I want to make a, an argument. I want to make a case that um, in, a, in a world like ours, God is speaking a lot. Uh, it just so turns out we're, we're probably not listening a whole lot. Elizabeth Barrett Browning in her famous, one of her final po sort of collections of poetry, Aurora Lay, <clears throat> wrote this, penned these beautiful words, earth is crammed with heaven and every common bush afire with God, but only he who sees will take off his shoes. The rest just sit around and pluck blackberries. Um, I have uh, four grandparents who fought in World War II. Uh, my, uh, one of my grandparents actually was drafted by the Chicago Bulls to play basketball the week before Pearl Harbor. And the week before Pearl Harbor had to make a decision, when Pearl Harbor had happened, had to make a decision whether he was going to fight in the war or live his dream. And as so many did in his generation, he gave up his dream and fought in World War II. When you look at World War II, four grandparents who served in the war and a couple of uh, very close friends who were part of the, the, the war in Vietnam, when you take these two wars and you compare them, they're two very different wars, aren't they? They were both horrific wars, painful experiences, scars on our psyches and our stories, but when you compare these two wars, there's a, a, subtle, a very big difference between uh, one particular aspect of these wars. Uh, when World War II ended and the men came back, we see that the men who experienced World War II uh, came back with a particular kind of brokenness. Uh, PTSD rates were scooped super high, heroin abuse, one of the worst in American culture, spousal abuse uh, skyrocketed, and many of the, the veterans of Vietnam didn't have kids, largely because they saw the horrors of one of the worst wars one could imagine. But when you compare that to World War II, it's a very different story, right? When the men came back from World War II, uh, the United States wasn't depressed. We had defeated Hitler. Evil had been destroyed, right? The, the forces of darkness had been brought to its knees. Hitler and the Third Reich had been undone. 
And so when the men came back, right, there was a sense of profound joy, euphoria. Uh, we have a whole generation of people named after that euphoria. They're called baby boomers. Uh, they all came back and just had a bunch of kids. It was a very exciting time. But unlike World War, unlike Vietnam, PTSD rates, certainly were understood differently at the time, but PTSD rates was a bit kind of a different psychological awareness of, of our culture, but uh, drug abuse super low, spousal abuse super low, uh, it's kind of this cultural euphoria. You compare these two wars and you ask the question, what was different between these two wars? And ultimately between these two wars, there was one major difference. Both wars were horrible. But in Vietnam, when the war ended, the men literally flew back from fighting the Viet Cong to holding their babies within two days. They, went, they flew from the battlefields to their living rooms in two days. When you look at World War II, it was a very different story, wasn't it? Because the men didn't fly home and get home within two days. What did the men do? They sat on boats in the middle of the Pacific and the Atlantic Ocean for, for two months. But what do you do when you sit in a boat for two months? You cry. Tell your story. The men of Vietnam were never given a chance to process what had happened, whereas the generation of my grandparents had two months on a boat to figure out what had just happened. They had space to stop and process. Our culture has completely done away with space. It's gone. Um, some of you have heard of Andrew Sullivan. He's a, a very well-known uh, writer for the New Yorker, the New York Post. He's written a number of uh, pieces that have gone viral in the last couple of years. But his story is really interesting. Uh, Andrew Sullivan uh, is, for a long time, was really critical of the Christian faith. Uh, kind of a post-Christian Catholic who had a lot of issues with, with the church and wrote a, a great deal of critique of the, of, of the church. And a few years ago, he's famous for one thing, by the way. He's famous for starting something that you and I have heard of called blogging. And on average, Andrew Sullivan, when blogging started, uh, averaged about 13 blog articles a day. And Sullivan completely burned out. Sullivan, a few years ago, did something that some of us wish we could do. He just left the internet. And he was gone for quite a period of time. His life had burned out, he'd lost friends, family, career, and he comes back. And immediately after coming back, all of a sudden, Andrew Sullivan starts writing about God. And when he came back, he wrote an article called, I Used to Be a Human Being. And he talks about distraction sickness, this illness in our culture that we're so incredibly addicted to doing and thinking, we never have time to stop. And at the very end of this article, I used to be a human being, the last paragraph, he writes this. And it is as though he is throwing the church a softball. He says, I wonder if the churches could come to understand that the greatest threat to faith today in our world is not hedonism, it is distraction. And if they could, then they might begin to appeal anew to a frazzled digital generation. Christian leaders seem to think that they need more distraction to counter the distraction. Their services have degenerated into emotional spasms. Their spaces drowned with light and noise and locked shut throughout the day when their darkness and silence might actually be the thing that draw those whose minds and souls have grown web weary. It is as though Sullivan is throwing us a softball. As a Pentecostal, I feel like he's writing about me. 
We use distraction to counter the distraction. We are an emotional spasm in my movement. We call Pentecostals the adrenal gland of the body of Christ. <laughs> but I wonder in listening to Sullivan if maybe there's something to be said to us. It, by the way, turns out that Netflix just came out with their mission statement. You'll be pleased to know that next Netflix now exists, quote, to protect us from boredom. The new reality, by the way, when we actually do turn our phones off and we're not distracted, maybe you've had this experience, when you have your phone in your pocket for those rare moments that we turn it off, you find, have you had this experience, that even though your phone is off, you still feel it ringing. It's called a phantom vibration. And what happens is our bodies are becoming so addicted to distraction, at this point we start making it up so that we can feel important. Young people in Portland that I've served over the course of the last 10 years in planting a church in the urban core. There's this beautiful thing about Portland. It's all about justice, and I love that about the great city of Portland. I love that about the Pacific Northwest. I love justice. But when you serve people that live in a justice, progressive culture like my own, there's a certain underbelly of exhaustion. I call it justice exhaust exhaustion. The feeling of what, what exactly am I supposed to be mad about this week? And all of this, I think, speaks to a real problem. And the problem is that unlike the ancients, we don't know how to pay attention to God anymore. We read Exodus 3. I, I, by the way, there are a number of texts in the Bible that we could have easily addressed. For example, I look at that story in Acts chapter 3 when uh, Peter, after having been anointed by the Holy Spirit, is walking through Jerusalem and he comes to the temple gate, he bumps into a guy he'd seen many, many times before, and he comes to him and says, look at us. It's the first line out of his mouth when he sees the, the, the man on the side of the road at the temple gate called Beautiful. And he says, look at us. And the man looks up and he says, he says, silver or gold I don't have, but what I do give you, I give you in the name of Jesus. And he helps the man up and he is healed. The whole premise of that story is that Peter had seen that guy a million times before. He'd seen them. They recognized the guy. It just so happens that when you're filled with the Holy Spirit, you start seeing things you didn't see before. Your eyes have been opened up. The Spirit does not cause us to close our eyes. These worship songs that we sing sometimes about the world behind me, the Spirit does not close our eyes to the world. It opens our eyes to the world. So Peter walks by and he sees a man. And he says, look at us. I mean, that's a funky thing to say to somebody on the side of the road. Why look at us? My suspicion is Peter said, look at us. Because that guy had spent his life not being looked at. And he needed that man to know, I see you. Even in the Exodus text that we read, we see as Moses walks by, that his capacity to stop and pay attention is going to be the way that he hears God's name, Elyeh, Asher, Elyeh, I am who I am. The, the reply, by the way, this is one of the most theologically dense and complex parts of the entire Hebrew scriptures. God is revealing his name, and the whole story is set up by Moses' capacity to stop and listen. And by the way, incidentally, it's been pointed out to me by a, a number of commentaries that it, it isn't interesting that in this text, 
the voice originally says that it's a messenger of God and then immediately says afterwards that it is God. I would argue this is one of the first images of the incarnation of Jesus Christ in the Bible. The messenger is the message. The message is the messenger. And so Moses stops and talks to a bush. You ever talk to a bush? Is that a normative experience here in Wilmore? <laughs> I had a friend in high school who claimed to have seen Bigfoot in the hills outside of our hometown. I, by the way, am a big believer in Bigfoot. Um, I just don't believe my friend saw him, but I am a believer in Bigfoot. <laughs> uh, and I've got plenty of YouTube videos to prove it to you. I, I'm a big believer in Bigfoot. I suspect that if somebody came into our congregations and said... I spoke to a burning bush that we would call some kind of hotline. We have hotlines for this, don't we? For people that talk to burning bushes. But the fact that Moses speaks to a burning bush and that God is in the bush says a great deal about the way God seeks to communicate. That basically God's good at speaking through just about everything and can speak through anything. God's got a PhD in communication, four of them, five of them, eternal number of PhDs. He knows how to communicate through anything. My theory, by the way, about Peter and Moses in both of these stories, my theory is that had Moses owned a smartphone, Exodus 3 would have never been written down. If Peter had a smartphone, Acts 3 could not have happened. Because ultimately, the friends, friends, the question is not whether God is speaking through the burning bush. The question is not whether God is putting people on our path to see. The question is whether we have the capacity to stop. And by the way, the rabbis still teach to this day that Moses was not the first person to, to walk by the burning bush. They teach that Moses was just the first one who was willing to stop and talk to it that many walked by, but Moses stopped. By the way, when you study uh, attention and distraction, there's a whole cottage industry right now of uh, literature on distraction and attention loss. Uh, this is one of the, what's called the attention economy. Uh, it's a whole area of study in sociology right now. It's a big deal, and what they're finding, there's just some kind of big ideas. Number one, uh, they're finding, they're telling us, these people that study attention, they're telling us uh, that, that, that multitasking is actually a lie. It's not a real thing. It's a, a made-up word. Multitasking is not an actual thing. Uh, we can do what's called task switching, which is we go from one thing and do another and go back to it, and waste a ton of time. Uh, the, the billions of dollars, by the way, that are considered being lost in the American economy right now because of task switching is astounding. Because we don't have time. We don't stop and actually do what we're doing. We go back and forth constantly. We don't actually, multitasking is a lie. We, our, our entire life has become mediated by screens. Uh, one author said we've become attentionally promiscuous. We just throw our attention around to whatever shows itself to us. I took my family to Red Robin a few weeks ago. And it used to be that they just put screens on the walls. Now they put one on your table. I watched a family next to me for one whole hour of five 
not speak to each other one time as they all texted the entire dinner. Our deep attention is being lost. Cal Newport's written a great deal about this. It used to be, right, you had these monastics that would have time to write things like Summa Theologica and uh, you, you would have people like Augustine who could write the city of God. It used to be that we had deep attention. We could give our attention to something over a long period of time. But what was deep attention has become shallow attention. The average student can take in 15 minutes of information every week in an undergraduate institution. Is this affecting our relationships? How many children have we seen left in hot cars in the last few years? We're so attention-driven by so many other things that it's, it's literally killing our children. Our relationships, we don't talk anymore. We, we text, we, we, we don't, we're not actually present to one another. How's this affecting our faith? I think we've become like Pilate. I see a whole generation of young people who are deconstructing their faith, and they have profound questions about the faith, profound questions about the nature of the Bible, profound questions about sexuality, and they're asking them, and that's terrific. The problem is not that they're asking it. The problem is that we're not giving any time to just brood over a lifetime with the Bible and God. We expect an answer like this. We become like Pilate, who asks Jesus, what is truth? And then immediately turns around to the crowd. That is social media. We ask the question, and we've got profound questions. But we don't have time to do what the ancients did, which is just sit with the Bible over the course of a life. We don't have time for it. We love the truth. We just don't have time for it. It's not a mistake, by the way, that when you turn your iPhone off, if you've ever done it, <laughs> that the people who invented the iPhone have made it so that when you turn it off, it flashes an apple with a bite taken out of it. Like we're back in the Garden of Eden or something. And that we've been eating from the wrong tree all week long. We have replaced the Word of God with knowledge. We no longer have time to just sit and ask God, we go to our favorite podcast to get the answer. The truth is, you look at Jesus, and all the people in the Bible, look at Jesus, for example. Jesus is always watching people. Jesus was a watcher, a people watcher. Mark 12, Jesus watched as the people put their money into the temple uh, offering. John 4, Jesus sits and watches and has an engagement with the Samaritan woman. One book I read said, that story would not have happened had Jesus not sat and watched. Jesus is always watching. Peter sees this man that he, he, he had seen before. He stops. Moses stops and talks to a burning bush. This is my theory, by the way. I wasn't anticipating bringing this up this morning, but I feel like this is a safe territory to experiment with you. <laughs> Notice the first line in Exodus 3. Moses was tending the flock of Jethro. I find it interesting the number of people in the Bible who have an encounter with God who first, before that encounter, tended something. Jacob tended Laban's flock. Joseph tended the flocks of Egypt. David tended the flocks 
What did the shepherds do before encountering the message that Jesus had come? Tended the sheep. It seems like people in the Bible who know how to tend to real life know how to attend to God. The problem, friends, is that we have not practiced any skills of attention in life. And so when a burning bush is there, we just walk by. We don't tend scriptures. N.T. Wright has written about this. He says, when you look at the hard things of the Bible, so often we just go to the commentaries and, and just find the, the answer. And by the way, praise God for the commentaries and the props in this room who wrote them. But N.T. Wright, J.W. Tozer says that one of the greatest enemies to the spirit-filled life is your commentaries. That we go to the commentaries before we go to God. We need the commentaries. You need to buy them in your classes. Do that. But to go to a commentary before we go to the living God says a great deal about what we value. Have we forgotten that God says in the Bible that the glory of God is to hide a matter? God loves hiding stuff. Why? Because he loves creating contexts where we have to pursue God. We don't tend to our struggles. We ignore them. I love that we're totally into Enneagram right now. Praise the Lord that we're learning about ourselves. We need to learn about ourselves. As a three, I'm going to conquer the Enneagram. <laughs> Praise God that we're learning about ourselves. We are into Enneagram for the same reason that we are into genealogies. We don't know who we are or where we came from. And I, I praise God that we're learning about that stuff. I would also say, though, do not replace God's word of truth about your identity with your number. God's word over you is way more important than your number. We don't tend to each other. Bonhoeffer talked about this all the time. By the way, John talked about it too. First John 4, he says, if, if you want to practice God's presence, he says, learn to listen to people. <laughs> we, we, if, if you want to know, uh, uh, hear God's voice, then learn to practice that with pe people. Bonhoeffer said, we no longer listen to our brothers because we don't listen to God, and we don't listen to God because we don't listen to our brothers. We don't tend to our needs. We, we, we just assume they don't matter. We don't tend to our soul. Even God's will. I teach in an institution where the marketing campaign says, find your calling, and I love that about my institution. Find your calling, and it's a beautiful picture of a student smiling and just who has found God's will. I look at that picture and I go, that's not always how it works out. Because sometimes God's will doesn't make you smile. And not only that, the idea that we're going to be able to find it in the four years of our perfectly allotted undergraduate degree or seminary degree. <laughs> Isn't it cool that Moses looked at the burning bush long enough for the text to say that it was burned but not consumed? He looked long enough. He just kept looking. I wonder if you're seeking God's will. And you get excited about this thing or that and it burns for a day, but day after tomorrow it's gone. I wonder if one of the greatest ways that we can discern God's will is to just keep looking at it long enough to find the stuff that burns really long time and doesn't go away. 
I'd invite you to a couple ideas. Um, if, 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 if we want to be people that learn to attend to God in prayer in our lives, I'm going to invite you just to a couple ideas. Number one, have a screen Sabbath. One day a week where you have the guts to turn your phone off and be before the living God, to wrestle with God, to be with God, to attend to God, to wrestle with your own soul one day a week. Secondly, remember that God's silence is binge-worthy too. And that when we go to bed at night and click on that Netflix, as great as it is to put us to sleep, there's something lost when we don't spend time on our beds in silence. And I appreciate every show that I've binge-watched over the years. But at some point along the way, I forgot that God's silence and his presence are binge-worthy too. Thirdly, when we eat together, let's turn our phones off. It's weird, I've noticed undergraduate students who have learned how to text under the table and watch me at the same time. I can tell they're not uh, actually paying attention because it's, you, you know guitar face when somebody's playing a guitar and they just sort of look at you? <laughs> I can tell. <laughs> and they're, I'm fine, their grades will be affected and that's, that's their choice, I'm fine with that. But we should remember that people are made in the image of God, not our phones. And that to give a person attention is to look at the grandeur of God that's sitting across the table from us. And fourthly, just as an idea, turn off your notifications. Have your phone, that's fine. Turn your notifications off. Because what's happening is we've become better at keeping up with the Kardashians than we have the Holy Spirit. We are better at feeling those notifications that pull us away from life than we do to attend to the notifications of the Holy Spirit. Those little promptings and movements. I wonder if we had the time to listen to those, if we'd be able to say the thing that the person in front of us needs to hear. Just turn your notifications off. Give it a shot. I did it for one day and then turned it back on the next, but... I now don't have notifications, but I will say it's like coming off uh, an addiction. It's very hard. As I look at the story of Moses and, and think about what you're walking through in terms of prayer, it takes me all the way back to the first time I got a Blackberry. I remember when I got my first Blackberry. I don't have a Blackberry anymore, but I remember when I first got my first Blackberry. And I remember the feeling of being anywhere I wanted to be able to do whatever I wanted, wherever I was. It was so liberating. I had been a, freed from the oppression of the time-space continuum. <laughs> I could do what I wanted, when I wanted, where I wanted. But something tugged at my heart. I remembered as a child, my dad is a doctor, and he would work 80 hours a week. And I remember there were two things that I loved about being with my dad. I loved fishing with my dad, and I loved being at Disneyland with and it took years of counseling to figure out why those two things meant so much to me. They meant so much to me because my dad, who was always on call, those were the only two places he was not on call. I took my son, my eight-year-old, to Disneyland the first time a few years ago. We were standing in line at Mr. Toad's Wild Ride. And there was a father and his six-year-old son in front of us. 
And the six-year-old son reaches up and pulls on his dad's shirt for a good five minutes to watch for five full minutes as his dad spent the entire time of his son pulling, texting. And it dawned on me for the very first time that we are raising a whole generation of kids who are being taught that we are in the room, but we're not really in the room. And that if we do that to, the, to them, they will do that to us when we grow up. Did you notice God said, take off your shoes? What a weird response to holiness. Take off your shoes. Why? What, what a... Why, why, what, of all the things to do, you think of repent, turn from your sin, go to AA, get counseling, take off your shoes. What in the world is important about people who take their shoes off? My son, for years, I've been a workaholic, most of my adult life, the last few years, God has been bringing me to a point of tremendous repentance. But for years, my son would say to me, immediately when I would get home, and I never understood it, I would walk in the door, he'd run up to me, give me a hug, and say, Dad, take your shoes off. Dad, take your shoes off. And three months ago, I'd heard it enough. I pulled him aside and I said, I love you. Why do you want me to take your shoes off? My shoes off. And he said, because, Dad, when your shoes are off, you have no better place to be. When I come in, he doesn't need to say it anymore. I throw those shoes in the corner of the room. <laughs> because I want my son to know that there's no better place to be than with, with him. And I want my God to know there's no better place to be than to be with him. Nowhere is better than the presence of God. I wonder if Elizabeth Barrett Browning came back today. She died many years ago, but if she came back, I wonder if she rewrote her poem that I read at the beginning. And I wonder if she would rewrite it just a little bit. I wonder if it might say, Earth is crammed with heaven, and every common bush afire with God. But it is only he who sees who takes his shoes off. The rest sit around and just play with their blackberries. Would you stand with me? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, you are worthy of a people who don't have their shoes on. And we have been addicted to everything else but you. And we repent. We ask you for grace and mercy. But we also pray by the power of the Holy Spirit, you would open our eyes to the right things. To see the Spirit of God. To see the voice of Jesus to see the broken, to hear the Father's voice. Would you teach the church in the 21st century 
to recognize that the one thing we have to give to the world right now that it has none of is attention. We love you and we take our shoes off. We love you. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.